the open secret in Hollywood is out. Sexual harassment is rampant. That alone doesn't surprise us anymore. But today I want to dig a little deeper. When did blacklisting begin and why did no one speak out sooner? Was it all out of fear? Was anyone complicit? Or was it just so normalized that no one knew what to say in the first place? Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Prism of the Past. In recent years, we've heard about blacklisting in Hollywood resulting from people speaking out about sexual assault, but blacklisting has been happening for decades now and for a variety of ridiculous reasons. Today, we'll get into what blacklisting in Hollywood was like back during the Red Scare and what it's like today. This episode will heavily discuss sexual assault and mention pedophilia, so if that upsets you, please feel free to click away. With that being said, let's get into it. The Hollywood Blacklist, a list of workers ineligible for employment became official during the Red Scare. Strikes within the industry during the 30s and 40s created tensions. And as we know from the Disney series, events like the animator's strike of 1941 were blamed on them being communists. After World War II, fear of corruption and communism seeped into every facet of American life, including the entertainment industry. The first accusations were made in 1941 when Hollywood's role in promoting Soviet propaganda began. In actuality, the senators that made the accusations, Burton Wheeler and Gerald Nye, had conflated Judaism with communism. According to the lawyer defending the studios, these senators weren't patriots, but anti-Semites. By 1947, the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, began investigating Hollywood in earnest. 10 motion picture producers, directors, and screenwriters appeared before Congress in October of that year, but refused to testify. Aside from one German writer who fled the country, the rest were all sentenced to six months to a year in prison. One of the directors confessed to being a communist, cooperated, and gave the names of 26 others so he wasn't blacklisted. The rest unfortunately were and couldn't work in Hollywood after that unless it was under a pseudonym. This group later became known as the Hollywood 10. And while the initially had the support of their peers, they were denounced pretty quickly, likely because no one wanted to be associated with them during the Red Scare. If you weren't seen as cooperative with the HUAC, then your film could be boycotted. Siding and working alongside the accused, innocent or not, was dangerous. Research has shown that if an artist appeared in a top 10 box office film, they would be 16% less likely to find a job if one of their coworkers was blacklisted, 10% if the film was less successful. Chances of winning an Oscar dropped by 9%, chances of finding employment dropped by 13%. All of this if a coworker was blacklisted, regardless of the relationship and if it began before the list existed. Billy Wilkerson, the founder of The Hollywood Reporter, added fuel to the fire in what his son, Willie, has now called a Hollywood Holocaust. One column written by Wilkerson Sr. called a vote for Joe Stalin was essential to early investigations, revealing names of those within the Screenwriters Guild that, according to him, had communist ties. One source says that this column itself became known as Billy's List or Billy's Blacklist, and it helped to propel the fear-mongering that took place in the years that followed. Willie explains. Wilkerson's 1946 anti-communist campaign, which began as a schoolyard spat with the movie brass, snowballed out of control. 
1950, what I call Hollywood's Holocaust spread nationwide under Senator Joseph McCarthy and claimed the livelihoods of thousands of Americans. Calling someone a communist today is almost laughable, but in 1950, it was a professional death sentence. Instantaneously, people lost their jobs and future employment was, in too many cases, denied. The blacklist silenced the careers of some of the studio's greatest talent and ruined countless others merely standing on the sidelines. The real victims of the blacklist, mused film producer Howard Koch, were those who had the wrong last names or went to communist meetings just to pick up girls. Though I agree this damaged many careers, I think it's a massive stretch to call it a Holocaust given how many millions died in the actual events of the Holocaust. Still, the point remained the same. While a rare few found work after being blacklisted, the Red Scare killed many budding careers. One woman even claims that she was vacationing in Paris when a friend called her and said, don't come back or else they'll make you go to Washington and you'll never work in Hollywood again anyway. Another so-called communist, Cliff Carpenter, said he'd been writing a script for CBS and was told that he needed to put a new name on it after he was blacklisted. Actress Marsha Hunt has also stepped forward and said, our industry was under attack. Every headline, every newscast, every newsreel was blazing the news that Hollywood movies were filled with secret communist propaganda. And there was a panic in the industry that people would stop going to movies. Something had to be done. We, the Committee for the First Amendment, flew to Washington to tell people, the movie-going people, that movies are still safe. We're not interested in communism, but free speech. While some, such as the Committee for the First Amendment, did try to fight back, it wasn't until the anti-communist crusade died down in the 60s that the Hollywood blacklist did too. Unfortunately, there is still a blacklist in Hollywood today, only it exists for very different reasons. Now, before we get into some of the darker and more abusive elements of today's episode, I'm just gonna go ahead and place the sponsor right here at the beginning so that this is kind of your fair warning before we get into it. This is like last call. So here's the sponsor. Hey, so for today's mid-roll, it's just me promoing some me stuff. So as you probably know, I've started to get more and more into Twitch and just live streaming in general. So that's kind of what I just want to talk about for a brief moment in the middle of where today's mid-roll ad would be. So I'm getting back into streaming on Twitch. It's twitch.tv slash the Illuminati. And that's where you can catch me live. Here in the next couple of weeks, I'm gonna be debuting my very first 2D VTuber model. So if you wanna be there for the debut and hang out, chat with me live, all of that good stuff, make sure you're heading over to my Twitch. I am gonna try and get a more consistent schedule over there. I know like over here, I have a very rigorous schedule and yet for some reason over on Twitch, I'm just like schedule, who's that? But I am gonna try to start holding myself accountable to a schedule to try and go live one to three times a week. So if you wanna join on the discussion, make sure you go to my Twitch, The Illuminati with a V at the beginning. I hope to see you in a future stream sometime soon. Now back to the episode. Before we can explain how people have been blacklisted for speaking out about abuse within Hollywood, let's take a look at the abuse itself. While I don't expect to cover all of it today, I wanted to at least mention how serious this is and how many people have been involved. After all, it's becoming something of an open secret in recent years that pedophilia and sexual abuse are rampant within Hollywood. Reports about Harvey Weinstein, now one of the most infamous names in film, set off a chain reaction. 
James Toback, Tyler Grasham, and Kevin Spacey were all accused of sexual harassment or worse. And former child actors like Corey Feldman stepped forward and shared their experiences with pedophilia rings and various forms of abuse. Many women in the industry began stepping forward as well. And with the Me Too movement, it had a massive impact on how Hollywood hires. 60 women accused Bill Cosby of sexual harassment or worse, and six women reported that the chief executive of CBS had sexually assaulted them. Sylvester Stallone, rapper Riff Raff, Ben Affleck, Woody Allen, the list is insanely long. One documentary, fittingly called Open Secret, premiered in 2014 and addressed the industry's assault and abuse epidemic head on, especially when it comes to young boys. I decided to watch the documentary myself. Uh, It was available for me on Vimeo, so I can give you the Cliff Notes version here. I'm just gonna be honest, it was not the easiest watch in the world. It opens with former child star Todd Bridges explaining that one particular episode of Different Strokes, which featured his character being preyed upon by an older man, was always incredibly unsettling for him. The man's name is Mr. Horton. Right. That show was very unsettling for me. It happened to me and they didn't even know, Todd explained. From what I gathered, this episode was meant to be a warning or educational message about pedophiles in general. I had myself gone through that and watching it happen on the show, it was like reliving that all over again. I was reliving that whole thing all over again. Maybe we'd better not let your dad know about the bike. In fact, maybe it would be best if you didn't even mention, you know, that you came back here and I gave you all this ice cream before dinner. You know something, Arnold? I really like you. I really like you. You and I are gonna have a lot of good times together. After some background about a few of the men featured in the documentary where they describe their love of acting and modeling, the documentary slowly shifts gears. And it begins addressing the fact that headshots of kids were being sold on eBay. Nothing lewd and nothing sexual, just headshots of child actors being sold for hundreds of dollars. The sellers were close to the industry, alarmingly so, as the co-founder of BizParents claims. BizParents, by the way, is a nonprofit founded to help families of child actors. One of these eBay sellers, Bob Villard, was a convicted sex offender who has been transporting child porn as early as 1987. Not only was he a massive eBay seller, but a well-known publicist who worked with incredibly big names like Leonardo DiCaprio. In the early 2000s, he worked with child manager and pedophile Marty Weiss. But this wasn't just strange and unsettling behavior like selling headshots. Evan Henze, who is also featured in the documentary, talks about how Marty Weiss seemed like the perfect manager, promising Evan that he'd be featured on the Disney Channel in no time. Marty didn't even begin abusing Evan immediately. He gained the family's trust first. He landed Evan a Burger King commercial and as Evan's parents say, did a lot for Evan's budding career. He became part of the family, even seeing them every major holiday. Slowly but surely though, his jokes became more and more inappropriate when he was with Evan. He'd ask Evan, do you know what a blowjob is when Evan was only 11 years old? Evan tried to brush it off, but the situation escalated. When Marty began abusing him, he was conflicted. They were family at this point. He and his parents trusted Marty. Managers had these kids trust by design, by necessity. James G., another child actor, said that some child actors moved in with their managers because it wouldn't have been financially viable for the parents to move. 
Digital Entertainment Network, DEN, a platform meant to be a breakthrough entertainment network for kids, was one way these predators obtained child victims. Three men, Mark Collins Rector, Brock Pierce, and Chad Shackley, who moved in with Mark when he was only 15 and Mark was double his age, all established this company together. Den auditioned children. Another former child actor featured in the documentary, Mike Egan, explains that at the house where Mark, Brock, and Chad stayed and where their first series was filmed, the men would often be naked together in the hot tub. Depressingly and unsurprisingly, the very first episode of their series was about a young man moving into a mansion with an older man. Others in the documentary confirm Mike's story and state that though they couldn't confirm the men were having sex right there in the hot tub, the positioning made it appear that way. For transparency's sake, some of Mike Egan's claims have come under question and even been disproven at times, so I won't really be focusing on his accusations or naming those that he alone has accused. As for the others though, such as Mark Collins Rector, what he did was in fact despicable. Mark Ryan's father reads from his son's deposition and explains what happened at one of these massive den parties. Drugs were made available to us, Mark said. Brock Pierce and Mark Collins Rector tried to push me into taking these drugs. I refused. They then offered me cocktails, which I accepted. I believe that they laced my cocktail with ecstasy. I was feeling very lightheaded, dizzy, and confused. Collins Rector told me I could go sleep in his bed, that if I went into his bed, I would have to strip naked. Collins Rector went from being careful and compassionate to forceful and threatening. I told him that I would not go to bed with him, which he responded, well, then don't worry about coming in to work tomorrow morning. I then went to sit on the couch and at some point I passed out. When I woke, I found myself in Mark's bed, completely naked. Collins Rector was naked in the bed as well with his arm around me. I don't know all the things that happened to me, but I know Mark drugged and abused me. Reporter John Connolly says that even though it can't be confirmed that every investor meeting with Collins Rector knew what was going on, it seemed likely that some of them did. Director Brian Singer's name was floated around numerous times among others, but many denied having any idea what was going on. John, on the other hand, isn't buying it. According to him, they must be blind. If you see young men naked in a hot tub when you're having dinner or you're having dinner with naked young boys or young boys inappropriately dressed for dinner, unless you're deaf, dumb, and blind, you say this doesn't taste right, something is wrong. And I do appreciate the sentiment. To ignore pedophilia is to be complicit in it. SAG or the Screen Actors Guild has also had moments where people have questioned if they're complicit. After Villard, the eBay and child porn seller was arrested, the police asked victims to come forward, but Michael Hara, former child manager and chairman of SAG Young Performers Committee, vehemently opposed SAG releasing any sort of alerts to parents whose children may have worked with Villard. According to him, it was to protect the children's identities. His critics argue that this only hides pedophiles further. This is why children, such as one anonymous minor who has accused Brian Peck of sexual abuse, keep their identities a secret. Thankfully, this was eventually unraveled as more and more people started to speak out about Collins Rector, Den and the manager, Marty. But did they get any justice? Well, not as much as you'd hope. The Guardian writes, a handful were caught and served relatively brief jail sentences before returning to the industry. Brian Peck, an actor and acting coach who worked for Nickelodeon and the X-Men franchise was convicted of two counts of lewd acts with a child. He is now working in the industry again. 
The documentary features interviews with Evan Henze, who was 11 years old when his manager, Martin Weiss, started assaulting him. Weiss pled no contest in 2012 to two counts of child molestation and was sentenced to a year in jail and five months probation. He was freed immediately due to time served. As for Chad and Brock, they were released quickly, but Mark Collins Rector escaped. He registered as a sex offender, but in 2006 was given permission to travel to the UK to receive medical treatment. Then a year later, he applied for a civil union with an 18 year old boy. He renounced his US citizenship and has been untraceable ever since. The people who invested in him didn't sue. Why would they? After all, they wanted this attention to go away. Reporter John Connolly claims he wrote a story about this years ago, but it was killed. His expenses were paid and that was the end of it. Sure, Marty was convicted and we know that Collins Rector is a pedophile, but they're still free out there to hurt others. It doesn't feel like justice. Now, since these allegations broke and the documentary was released, a few things have changed. New guidelines were implemented to prevent abuse and social activism raised more awareness. There have been quite a few steps in the right direction. Especially important are the child protection laws that don't allow registered sex offenders to work with artists or performers under 18. And just a total side note here, but the way that many of the older men in this film speak is quite frankly disturbing. When one former child actor, Joey, speaks to Michael Hara, his former manager, and confronts him for trying to touch him, Michael claims that he just doesn't remember things happening the way Joey does. The director behind the camera asked Michael, are you attracted to young boys? He says, not particularly, in a high-pitched but defensive sort of tone, then looks away. And seriously, can we get Observe or some other nonverbal communication channel to take a look at this? Because the way he says that, it is insanely suspicious. Anyway, as important as recognizing the problem is, people began to ask the question, why didn't anyone speak out in the first place? If sexual abuse has been so rampant, then why is it only now that we've begun to talk about it? Well, there actually have been a few voices within the industry that attempted to bring awareness to this topic. The trouble is they've been silenced. Brendan Fraser was well known for his roles in Disney's George of the Jungle, the original Mummy trilogy and Encino Man. And of course, one of my favorite movies, Bedazzled, which also had Elizabeth Hurley, one of my favorite roles for her as well. According to Fraser, his career took a hit when he was sexually assaulted at a 2003 luncheon organized by the Golden Globe and the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Former FPA president, Philip Burke, allegedly groped Fraser at this event when they were shaking hands. Speaking about the claims, Fraser says, his left hand reaches around, grabs my ass cheek, and one of his fingers touches me in the taint. And he starts moving it around. I felt ill. I felt like a little kid. I felt like there was a ball in my throat. I thought I was going to cry. Frazier revealed that he did not go to the police at the time because he didn't want the accusations to become a part of his narrative. He added that the alleged encounter made him retreat from the spotlight and also put forward the argument that offers for major roles from Hollywood studios suddenly ceased to come forward. Frazier effectively blacklisted himself after these events. Burke has either claimed it didn't happen or claims that he pinched Frazier's behind in jest. Frazier thought about making this public after it happened, but ultimately just asked for an apology from the HFPA instead. Burke said that he was sorry if he'd done anything to upset Frazier, but he admitted no wrongdoing. The HFPA also promised they'd never allow Burke in a room with Frazier again. And Burke denies this, but Frazier still felt depressed, reclusive, and even blamed himself. After 2003, he was rarely invited back to the Globes. And though Frazier doesn't know if he curried disfavor with the HFPA or not, he adds that the silence was deafening. 
Burke has denied this as well, stating his career declined through no fault of ours, though it does seem that in recent years, Frazier has started taking on more roles again. Personally, I would argue that it is Burke's fault that Frazier didn't feel comfortable or safe enough to work in Hollywood if this incident took place. Though Frazier may have willingly stayed out of the spotlight after the event, it wasn't as if he randomly decided he wanted to stop acting either. One GQ article reads, Frazier says the experience messed with his sense of who I was and what I was doing. Work, he says, withered on the vine for me. In my mind, at least, something had been taken away from me. He was in a hotel room just weeks ago watching the Globes on TV, Frazier says, as the actresses wore black and the actors wore times up pins in solidarity when the broadcast showed Burke in the room. He was there and Frazier was not. Tippi Hedren is one of the most well-known and oldest examples of the consequences of speaking out in Hollywood. She claims that after working in the movie Psycho, Hitchcock cast her in the film, The Birds and Marnie. On set, Hitchcock allegedly told other cast members not to socialize or go near Tippy, and that he even once threw himself on top of her and tried to kiss her while they were traveling in his limo. If Hitchcock even witnessed Hedren talking or laughing with another man, he would stare at her and become icy and petulant. The New York Post alleges that it got so bad that co-star Suzanne Plachette pulled Tippy aside and said, quote, "'This is so sad because I promise making movies isn't always like this,' end quote. Hitchcock would also tell Tippy that he had gotten an erection while directing certain scenes in other movies. He'd have his driver purposely go past her home and ask her to touch him. On another occasion, he summoned her into his office and grabbed her. She alleges that Hitchcock even punished her for rebuffing his advances by creating a dangerous work environment. When the mechanical birds didn't work, breaking some supposedly shatterproof glass that hit her in the face, they were replaced with live birds that were attached to Hedron's body with elastic bands. One of the birds nearly pecked her eye out as a result. Once it became clear that Tippy wasn't about to relent or sleep with him, Hitchcock blocked Universal Studios from submitting her performance for an Oscar and talked badly about her to others. Since Tippy was still under contract for two more years and Hitchcock refused to let her work with other directors, this effectively destroyed Tippy's career. Studios were the power, Hedren said in 2012, and I was at the end of that, and there was absolutely nothing I could do legally whatsoever. There were no laws about this kind of situation. If this had happened today, I would be a very rich woman. Aside from Frazier and Hedron though, there are those who have been incredibly outspoken about the abuse they faced and alleged it was only after making their experiences public that they had to deal with the fallout. Rose McGowan says that she was blacklisted in Hollywood after Harvey Weinstein raped her in 1997 during the Sundance Film Festival. Rose had made a name for herself in Charmed, Jawbreaker, and Scream, yet she seemingly vanished after the early 2000s, no longer landing massive roles. According to Rose, it's because she threatened to speak out almost immediately. Weinstein quickly settled with her for $100,000 that same year, but as Rose would later learn, the terms of the settlement never actually included a confidentiality clause. Rose may be able to speak out, but Weinstein and his colleagues shut down her acting career at its peak. According to my source, Rose states, they threatened me with being blacklisted. I was blacklisted after I was raped because I got raped, because I said something, but only like internally, you know? Rose also adds that the only reason she didn't go to authorities is that she received legal advice that if she did, she'd have no chance of winning. Actress Annabella Sora had been put in a similar position. She too was blacklisted from Hollywood by Weinstein after he raped her in the winter of 1993, 1994. Annabelle claims that he would send her gifts, phallic-shaped chocolates and a bottle of Valium. 
He allegedly threatened to sue her when she refused, but sometime later forced himself on her while Annabella was in her apartment. The amount of women that felt cut off from the industry after rejecting Harvey is actually astounding. One article from The New Yorker reads, four actresses, including Mira Sorvino and Rosanna Arquette, told me they suspected that after they rejected Weinstein's advances or complained about them to company representatives, Weinstein had them removed from projects or dissuaded people from hiring them. Multiple sources said that Weinstein frequently bragged about planting items in media outlets about those who spoke against him. These sources feared similar retribution. Several pointed to Amber Gutierrez's case. After she went to the police, negative items discussing her sexual history and impunging her credibility began rapidly appearing in New York gossip pages. These women were left with a decision no one should have to make. After being sexually assaulted or harassed, did they speak out about it and lose their jobs or move on and say nothing? I can't imagine what I would do in that position, nor do I think it's right for anyone to question why some people, men or women in any industry, would do the latter, especially when breaking into Hollywood is so difficult to begin with. Mira claims that at a film festival in 1995, Weinstein had been massaging her shoulders and trying to get more comfortable, even chasing her around a hotel room. Mira managed to leave the room, and when she did tell another woman at Miramax, the woman's reaction was, as Mira put it, shock and horror that I had mentioned it. Though Servino was in a couple more Weinstein films after that, it wasn't the same. She too had been a rising star around that time, winning a Best Supporting Actress role in 1996. But slowly, she started to vanish from Hollywood too, feeling iced out, and that quote, my rejection of Harvey had something to do with it, end quote. Ashley Judd has also reported the same thing, claiming more specifically that Weinstein smeared her reputation to Peter Jackson, keeping her from being cast in Lord of the Rings. It's disgusting enough that Weinstein didn't cast these women in his own films because they spoke out or rejected him, but to disparage them to other actors is especially low. Weinstein has obviously denied this, but Ashley's lawsuit says otherwise. Page two reads, A self-described benevolent dictator who has bragged that I can be scary, Weinstein used his power in the entertainment industry to damage Miss Judd's reputation and limit her ability to find work. Miss Judd is not alone. Other professional women learned that Weinstein was more than willing to smear them and tarnish their reputations to punish them for trying to reject him, resulting in both the actor's harm and Weinstein's financial gain. These women and others have shared powerful accounts of their experiences with some enduring and courageously surviving significant physical and emotional harm. Other women who have had these horrific experiences with Weinstein claimed that he would promise he could advance their careers if they slept with him. So it doesn't feel like a stretch to believe that he could destroy them too. Thankfully, we don't have to wonder because there's those who have confirmed, yes, this blacklisting took place. And how do we know that information? Well, they confirmed that they were a part of it. Director Peter Jackson admitted that yes, he did blacklist Ashley Judd and Mira Sorvino because he was told by Harvey Weinstein's company, Miramax, that they were a nightmare to work with and to avoid the women at all costs. I see no reason why Peter would lie about this, seeing as it didn't really benefit him in any way. For these women's careers to slowly disintegrate for seemingly no reason, all after rejecting or rebuking Harvey Weinstein, it seems more than likely that Weinstein orchestrated these smear campaigns. Between 1992 and 1995, Annabella claims that these were the exact kind of reasons she had been given when she was tried to be cast for roles. She was told, we heard you were difficult. As for Ashley Judd, he claims that he began hearing rumors about her in 1998, a couple years before the Lord of the Rings trilogy was released. 
He has also since apologized, saying that if he and the producer Fran Walsh were unwittingly accomplices in damaging their careers, then they're deeply sorry. Some of these actresses are now making comebacks and landing television gigs, which is fantastic. Still, I'm sure many of them wish they never had to suffer being blacklisted in the first place. Although the fear of being blacklisted is very real, there's other reasons why this open secret was kept a secret for so long. For example, some actors such as Corey Feldman did make these accusations known. However, in part because of his struggle with drug addiction, he wasn't always taken seriously. Corey also appears on Dr. Oz, reality TV, and other daytime reality shows, which doesn't exactly help his credibility. Yet, as The Guardian argues, survivors can process trauma in self-destructive ways, and these behaviors are often cited as reasons to ignore them, look away, or not believe them. In other words, the drugs aren't a reason to discredit Corey, but a symptom of the abuse that did happen. And to an extent, this can occur anywhere. Disparaging and disgusting comments meant to tear apart these women's credibility don't just happen because they're famous. Donna Rotuno, a lawyer for Weinstein, claimed that she would never put herself in a position to be raped and women needed to take responsibility for their own actions. The fear of not being believed, confusion, wanting to forget, fear of retaliation, all of that is a reality for survivors of sexual assault. And that combined with blacklisting and this very public lifestyle make it all the more difficult for people to step forward. One survey says that sexual harassment and assault is so normalized in Hollywood that 94% of women in the film industry have experienced it. Yet, unless their story is perfect, they are dismissed, sometimes even then. The Guardian explains, when it comes to sexual assault, victims are often deemed to not be perfect enough. Their sexual history is too lousy, their behavior afterwards too wild. We are going to have to learn how to make room for imperfect victims and to understand what the key to their stories lie in their imperfections. Listening to those who do speak up is important because as we've seen, voices are all too often silenced, especially within Hollywood. Todd Bridges has also had to deal with his own addiction being made into a sensationalistic headline because his run-ins with the law. This did unfortunately and inevitably affect how people viewed Todd when he stepped forward as a victim of sexual abuse by his male publicist. Ultimately, as terrible as this may sound, we need to talk about pedophiles and sexual abuse more. It may be difficult, but it's important because too often, I think we expect the despicable predators in Hollywood to just be a classic movie villains when in actuality abusers, especially pedophiles, more often present themselves as friends and even parental figures to these children. Hollywood has made fantastic strides with the Me Too movement, but at the end of the day, I'm sitting here wondering why I hadn't heard of Mark Collins Rector until researching this episode. Or maybe I had, and it was just so gross that I blocked it out, either way. I believe he should be just as infamous as Harvey Weinstein, that they both should be in prison for the rest of their lives for the pain they caused. Yet Mark is in Europe somewhere with some 18 year old lover. It just doesn't seem right, does it? Blacklisting in Hollywood became so tremendously dangerous that if you spoke out about sexual abuse as a child or as an adult, your entire career could and most likely would be lost. Though things seem to be heading in the right direction, actually enforcing the laws that have been designed to protect kids are still massive hurdles that Hollywood needs to overcome. As one news article writes, new laws require certain members of the entertainment article to obtain child performer service permits before working with minors. Not one Hollywood publicist has signed up and not one has been fined or charged for a lack of compliance. We need to start holding people accountable to these laws. If Hollywood really cares, then let's hold them up to the standards that they claim to set. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Prismo the Past. 
I hope you learned something new today. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest content. And make sure you click my Linktree link so that we can connect outside of these episodes. Thank you so much for making it to another episode. I know this one was not the most palatable in the world, but thank you for being here all the same. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye.